Genesis 15, beginning at verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look towards heaven and the number of, and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to them, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to see you this land to possess. Amen. Thank you. As we read Scripture, one of the things that we have to be really careful of is that we read it from our perspective, and sometimes we can take lessons from it that might be valid, but really isn't what the Scripture is getting at at all. And we're going to look, this is the 15th chapter, but we're going to take from where we ended last week at 12, and we're going to talk about 13, 14, and the beginning of chapter 15 this week. And I thought rather than reading and taking a while to read two and a half chapters of Scripture, that uh, I'd get to, to what is going to be a really pivotal couple of verses. But we're going to go back, and if you have your Bible, I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 13. Because we've been, just been introduced to Abram. He's been called out of this Ur of the Chaldeans, this land of, of paganism and polytheism, and he's been called by this God who wants to reveal himself. And he's headed in to a place that he didn't know where he was going, but God said, just go. Remember the pivotal verses of chapter 12, 1 through 3, this beginning of this Abrahamic covenant. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. So it just says, go. And I'll make of you a great nation. These are the promises. I'll bless you. Make your name great. You'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. Those who dishonor you, I'll curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then we talked about verse 4, so Abram went. And the importance of his then deciding he believed God and actually going. So that's kind of where we, we left off last week. And so Abram and Sarah take their cohort, including their nephew Lot, who uh, will become a, a figure and a player in the next chapter, and, and their land. They begin to settle in this land of Canaan, and we looked at how he builds altars. He begins to acknowledge in his own way. But let's, let's realize just a second here, because again, we live thousands of years later. We live after the cross, after Christ, and it's easy to project back to Abraham and think somehow Abraham was like a Christian or, or somehow as in believing God that he had some full understanding of all the, the promises of God. This guy is coming out of an environment where he's been an, raised as an idol worshiper and he's, 
He's getting revealed to him who this God is because the, one of the purposes of this covenant is to reveal who God is, not solely to Abraham, but remember, to all the earth. So bear that in mind. And then let's look at chapter 13. Abram had come out of, after he'd shown himself faithless in Egypt and cowardly by deciding to call his wife his sister, that was part of the story of last week and how it reveals it's not a lesson on God how great or awful uh, Abram is. The, uh, the Bible doesn't really make much comment, but it does show us how faithful God is when Abram is unfaithful. So we get to verse 13, and, uh, chapter 13, and essentially I'll capsulize the story here. Abram and Lot both had flocks and herds. They were both itinerant shepherds, nomads wandering, and God was blessing and they were growing. And of course, if you've been to Israel, you know that water sources are scarce. And pasture land, although it seemed to be much more uh, uh, green in, in that time than it perhaps is now, it's still a place where growing herds need water and land to graze, and they were infringing on each other. So the story, if you were raised as I was, uh, you know, going to Sunday school, this story of Lot and Abram deciding that, uh, they needed to split was kind of a thing I heard growing up. And the story goes that Abram turned to Lot and said, okay, look out over all the land. You choose where you want to go. And then I'll take the part you don't want. You go left, I'll go right. You go right, I'll go left. You choose. And I remember growing up, it was sort of presented to me like, this is a really good idea to let other people go first. It is a good idea to let other people go first. That's very polite. But that's not what the Scripture is trying to get at here. Okay, can I just tell you that? It's, it's nice, but this isn't a moral lesson. Or that Lot ends up down where Sodom and Gomorrah are, and we know the reputation of those towns as being wicked, that somehow Lot knew he he wanted the, the good part, which was the wicked part, like he somehow went to Vegas, and, uh, you know, that, that Abraham went to whatever a holy place is, if there is one. So let's look at a map just a second, because I think we need to look a little deeper of this. So hopefully you can see this map. The, 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 the sea there is the Dead Sea. It's in the, south, uh, in the southeast corner of what we know as Israel. But the important thing to remember here is that the Dead Sea marks one of the divisions of the Promised Land. It marks the uh, eastern border of what God delineates as the Promised Land. But Abram doesn't know that. The land has not yet been divided out. If you go north to where in red you see the word Benjamin, up there is kind of where they were uh, when they split. It says they were between uh, Bethel, which is up north, and Ai, over there, so they were kind of up there, and and looking out, you can see the greenish part would be pasture land, and so this is approximately a place where he says, "Look, either you go one way, and I'll go the other." And so what ends up happening is Lot chooses kind of what would be south for us on the lower part. You see down at the left side of the Dead Sea, it says Lot's tents, Genesis thirteen twelve. If you go around the bottom of the Dead Sea, you see this Valley of Sidim and these different towns. And that's where it says, uh, now it's not very great grazing land, but back then it seems to have been better. And so he takes that land, which according to Scripture looked really great. And 
from our perspective, it's like, well, Lot just chose. You said, you know, Uncle Abraham said, choose where to go. And yeah, it looks pretty good. So he went. We don't have any sense that Lot was doing the wrong thing or that they should pull a, no, no, you go first. No, you go first. Or that, here's the point I think that Scripture is trying to get at here. Where he ends up, we're told in um, chapter 13, is on the down, the back side, the right side of the Dead Sea, where it says Sodom, Gomorrah, Zoar. Those towns are named. Here's the point. Lot is outside the promised land. So here's, here's the thing I want us to look at. Abram is simply making a, what would be considered a rational decision at the time. Look, our, our, we're, we're running over each other here. Our sheep are just coming in. Our, it's, it's a problem, okay? So just choose. And Lot chooses, and he chooses, you know, understandably. But God has a bigger purpose in this, which is to whom was the land promised? Abram, not Lot. And Lot was not a descendant of Abram. He was a relative, but he's a nephew, and it's in, the promise is not coming through Lot. As a matter of fact, Lot becomes the father of tribes like Moab that are going to be problems. Lot's not going to be considered a character that's, that's... He needed to get out of the promised land so that Abram, because if he takes possession of it, you got some problems coming here. So here's the thing I think the Scripture wants to give, because again, we're talking many years of time that go on here, and we have very few stories, but I think the stories the Holy Spirit chooses are very important for us. And so what I want you to see is that there are times when God works His will and His purpose out in ways that we can't begin to fathom or imagine. And it looks like it comes through choices that are made very reasonably. and But let's not think for a minute that Abram or Lot probably knew all of God's plan and knew what was happening, and yet God works his purpose out. Here's why this is important. From my perspective here in 2017 or whatever it is, is that we ask all kinds of questions about, like, why do things happen? What What is God's will in this? And there are, in fact, two ways that God works his will out. One is what we call his decreed will. That is, what he has said is going to happen, and you and I aren't going to stop it. And how this occurs, there's a scripture in Proverbs that I love, and it says, a man will roll the dice or throw the lot, but even that outcome is in the hands of God. Something that seems so random, just pick a, pick a pasture. They didn't know where the lines of the promised land were going to be, but God did. And God needed to work his purposes out. And Lot had choices to make about how he was going to live in that land and and Lot's not going to do well down in Sodom and Gomorrah. But at that point, he didn't know that. He had choices to make, real choices that really mattered. There's a scripture, there's many scriptures that, that talk about how the Lord is in charge. God works all things after the counsel of his will. There are things that are in God's control. And this is one that he had made a promise to Abraham and he was going to carry it out. 
And then there are things that are under our control, the things that we make choices. There's a verse that says, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. In that case, he says, look, here's God's will, but you've got choices to make to fulfill that will. Here's the confidence I take in this, is that sometimes I worry, okay, God, are you really in control and in charge of this earth and my life and all the things that are happening to me and my family? And because I know I'm God's and one of his sheep, and that I'm a child of Abraham, been given the promise, I have complete confidence that God's in charge. And believe me, the day comes when you don't know what's happening and why and your world is spinning in circles. It's comforting to know that there's a God who does. And that His will, even if I make choices to say, God, I'm going to walk this way, but Lord, I know You're working out Your purposes in my life. And then there are times when we say, God, I'm going to make choices to obey. Remember, and Abram went. He had a choice to make to obey the will of God and to say, I'm going to go. So both and. Is the will of God written forever? Certain things are. Are there things we influence by our decision making? There certainly are. There's a line I love. It says, God does not bring about everything he values. You say, why are there, why is there such misery? Why is there such pain? Why is there such sin? If there's a loving God, then why fill in the blank? Horrible things happen. Why? God does not bring about everything that he values, but he never fails to bring about that which he's decreed. There are certain things that God has ordained. Lord Jesus is coming back bodily. You can't stop it. God will. God knows who are His. God has His hand on you. He won't let you fall. There are things. And so getting our mind around this, it's an important concept. And I think this idea of Lot making a choice that seems to us, just Abram saying, you choose, you choose, go ahead, go first. Seems very nice, whatever. And yet God works out something that now that we see later, we're going to see where the promised land and the when it's all divided up and we look and we say, Ah, this was Abram's possession. And God's going to work this promise out that he gives that it's to his descendants, to his children, to his line. I'm going to make you a great people, and we're going to see God repeat that promise. So Lot gets down there, and at that point, we don't know much about what happens, but we know that all these groups down on the southern side... This is a a travel area from Egypt up to Mesopotamia, and people who control that control the commerce. They get to charge tariffs and taxes, and these cities of the plain, the five cities of the plain that are down in the right-hand corner, we have a war that begins between... These are city-states, okay? Canaan's not one land. There's not Israel. Jerusalem's not the capital at this point. These are city-states. Each person, there's tribal and chieftains or even people like Abram that are wandering uh, people, but they have little armies and it's, it's a, you know, it's what we have. That's why we have all the ites in the land. They're all their own thing. And within that, there are city-states that are more powerful than others and they rise and fall. Hazor in the north, Jerusalem in the south. You have these, but, but they're not in complete control. It's not a nation at this point. But they're fighting with each other. And so we, we learn in chapter 14 about this war that happens. And Lot and his family get taken. And they get caught up in this war. They're living down in the area of Sodom outside the promised land. And they're taken away. And so Abram 
gathers an, an, his army, and he uh, it's not doesn't seem to be all that large. Says he has like 318 men, but he also gathers with other groups, three or four others, and he puts together a group, and they go and rescue Lot, and he wins the battle. So. We have uh, this story, uh, this is in chapter 14, 1 through 16. Uh, and so he's the winner. Uh, Abram ends up coming from the group that had uh, seized Lot. And as he takes the bounty of war back, and is that's what you did, you have the spoils of war. And, and so Abram is now going back, having freed Lot. And we have this story that is... Um, it's a a strange story in scripture it begins at verse 17 we run into this character called Melchizedek we read about him in the Psalms this morning he's mentioned three times in scripture in this little uh, about ten verses seven verses between uh, Genesis 14, 17 and 24 he's mentioned that one time in the Psalms where in this messianic Psalm David says I'm going to make you uh, priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And then he's mentioned extensively in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapters 5, 6, and 7 talk all about this guy. We don't know much about him. He's called the king of Salem, probably Jerusalem area, the king of peace. His name Melchizedek means my, uh, my God is righteous. And he stops on the way back after defeating uh, Kedorlamor, another unused biblical name, Kedor Lamor and the kings who were with him in verse 17. The king of Sodom, one of the defeated kings, went out to meet him. And so they come together, and it says in verse 18, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of the God Most High. That's very important. What we see here is a picture of a king who's also a priest. That really becomes a pivotal concept here. And he blesses Abram. We don't really know much about this guy and where what his belief system was or whatever. But he says this, Blessed be Abram by God Most High. El Elyon is that name. It's used not only of Yahweh, but also of many gods of that time. But those, he says, he's possessor of heaven and earth. Blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him that is Melchizedek, the king of Salem, a tenth of everything. Now look at this, 21. And the king of Sodom says to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. In other words, he had captured POWs, but he'd also taken spoils of war. And the king of Sodom is asking back his people, and he says, but you can keep the, the bounty, because that would be yours by right for winning the war. Um, And Abram says to the king of Sodom, I've lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that's yours, lest you should say, I've made Abram rich. I'll take nothing except what we've already eaten, because that's kind of hard to give back. And the share of the men who went out with me, so he let the others, Aner, Eskel, and Mamre, the other tribal people, take a, a fair share of that. But he gives back everything. All right, so what's this about? It's a little bit of a, what is this? What does this mean to us? So let me say that this isn't a, a sermon on Melchizedek. Hebrews 5-7 through 7 is an extensive look at 
who this person was or wasn't, and it leads to all kinds of speculation. It's way beyond the scope of this sermon. But let me just say this. We're introducing the idea of a king who's a priest, of someone who's a ruler, but also stands and mediates the way a priest would. And Abram acknowledges something important here. When you tithe, when he tithed, he acknowledged, it says in Hebrews, that he was submitting himself, that he was, it says, the inferior submitting to the superior. He was granting him to say, even though I won the war, even though maybe these were by right, this was mine, I'm granting this to you, Melchizedek. I acknowledge your superiority over me. King of Sodom, a little more uh, like dealing in the reality, says, okay, well, I want this back and this back. And he says, I don't want any peace of that. I don't want you, Sodom, and your people to think in any way you were the reason I was blessed. I'm giving all this back to you. I submit to Melchizedek. I give everything back to you, not because I couldn't keep it, because that's not God's purpose or plan. What does that mean to us? Throughout Scripture, there are times when you look and say, okay, God's given a promise for something, and it seems like the opportunity to step into that promise is there. Here's an, here's an example. David is promised to be the king, and David and his mighty men capture Saul, who is defenseless, and they could kill him, and David could become king. And the mighty men say, David, this is God's answer. And David says, no, this is not the mechanism by which God's going to install me as king. I don't know what it is, but this isn't it. And they let Saul go, right? I'm not going to touch the hair of, of the Lord's anointed. This isn't the way. It seems like the way, but it's not the way. Jesus says, I'm going to bring my kingdom to earth. And Satan tempts him while he's fasting and says, yeah, the kingdom's coming. Just bow down to me. Here's the kingdom. It was promised to you. And Jesus had an easy answer. That's not the way. I think Jesus knew clearly this is not God's answer. This is not the way that God's going to bring it about. And I think one of the things this, this is showing us is that Abram is learning that there's a way to bring about God's purposes, but you have to bring about God's purposes God's way. This is so important is that if we decide, well, the ends justify the means. As long as I get to God's will, it doesn't matter how I get there. No, the joy is in the journey of doing it God's way. Right after God had said to uh, that Lot had gone. I'm going to go back a second because I'm going to pick up something and we're now coming to verse 15. If you're back in chapter 13 of Genesis, verse 11, Lot chose for himself the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east, that southeast way, and they separated from each other. And in verse 14, it says, The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, Look, listen to that. When Lot had separated and gone, left the promised land, lift up your eyes, look from the place where you are, north, south, east, and west, all the land you see, 
I will give you and to your offspring forever. Remember back in Genesis 12, the promise of God was this. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. There's no promise at that point that he's going to, the land will be his. It's simply that he's to leave. And now God begins to reveal more fully what he's doing. Once Lot leaves, he says, I'm going to give you this land. Now go to 15, chapter 15. We have Abram submitting himself, humbling himself, saying, okay, God, I want to do this your way. I don't want to just have the land. Lord, I want to do it the way you've said to do it. And 14, chapter 14, we learned is kind of a a false way. And chapter 15, we're going to begin to enter in this week and next into how God is going to give the land, that it's not going to be what you think, and it probably wouldn't be what he liked but God's purpose is bigger than making Abram happy, and it's bigger than making you happy, or me. So, he says, chapter 15, the, Lord, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Only vision we have recorded. Abram's, Abram communicates with the Lord, but this way it's a vision. Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield, your protector, that is. Your, your reward shall be very great. Lord, what will you give me for I continue childless? Remember the promise of a great nation to a barren woman. So we get down to the meat. Sometimes you just got to address the elephant in the room. Okay, Lord, how is this going to happen? And Abram presents what would be a very reasonable and in that time period a very, this is the way people would have done it. You adopted someone and through them, Lord, is this the way it's going to be? Is this how you're going to answer the prayer? Eliezer of Damascus, he's the heir at this point. You've given me no offspring. A member of my household will be my heir. Verse 4, behold, the word of the Lord came to him. The man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. So here it comes. God saying very directly, this line Let's not mince any words, Abram. This is going to be, have to be something of God because it's not happening naturally in the way you and I might think. Brings him outside in this beautiful language and says, look toward the heavens, number the stars if you are able to number them. You know we can't number the stars, right? When you look at our, at our, now what we know, he didn't know what we know about galaxies and Hubble telescopes and the stars are so innumerable. And he says, if you're able to number them, so shall your offspring be. You see, the promise of God wasn't just for one, for what will be Isaac, but it's way beyond Abraham's ability to imagine what God could do. But now Abram's at the point of decision. And what does he do? Is he going, okay, God, I'll go out and have a child now. Yes! That'll be great. He's actually going to do that, and it's going to be a disaster. We'll talk about that in a little, in a, in a few weeks, because he's going to help God out with his plan. What is God's plan? What does Abram do? We want to do right. Tim, give me the seven steps. 
This is a frustrating church. If you want a seven-step church to time management or a better marriage, you're in the wrong church. You, you probably know that already. Not that there aren't good steps to marriage and time management. Those are great. But that's not what God's calling you to. Because you know what? You can do seven steps to have a crummy marriage. You can. So he says, okay, here it is. This is what I want you to do. Abram calling you. Stars in the sky. Descendants. Biggest promise. Here's what I need from you. Believe what I said is true. Do you believe it? And this is one of the most important verses in all of Scripture. Paul talks about it extensively. 15.6 And he believed the Lord. And it was accredited or counted, accounted to him as righteousness. You say a couple things. Abram wasn't saved this day in the way we understand salvation. Salvation comes through the cross of Jesus Christ, and we will see Abram in heaven, but this was not the salvation mechanism of he believed in the Lord and he repented and came to the, you know, came forward at an altar call, okay? He simply took God at his word and said, Lord, you've told me something. Humanly speaking, it's impossible. I believe you. And all of a sudden, on the accounting sheet of heaven, and I'm not an accountant, but I do know this, is that you got to add your assets and your liabilities have got to add up. And all of a sudden, this unbelief is credited and it's moved over to Abram's account, and he's now counted in right standing with God where he wasn't before. We're going to talk more about that next week because this is so important to understand because the gospel hinges. Our understanding of Jesus Christ and the gospel and the goodness of God starts here because Abram is the prototype of the chosen one. He is the one who was chosen. And through him, it's going to be through Isaac and through Christ and then into us. And this we've got to get this or we miss the gospel. But that Abram's job at this point was to believe the Lord. Now, there's belief and there's belief. And we're going to close with this. I've used this analogy before, but the New Testament pistis, the word for belief, is this. You can believe this chair will support you, and I, I know it will support me because I've sat in chairs exactly like this, but if this was a rickety old chair or this was something else, if I believe it intellectually and I believe it will support me, but I do this and I put no weight on it, it's not faith. It's intellectual belief. And one of the reasons people say, why is the church like this? Why are Christians like this? So much of it is because, and believe me, it's me I'm talking to sometimes, and it's some of you, is that you intellectually acknowledge that Jesus rose from the dead, and yeah, yeah, yeah. But until you set your weight upon Him, and until you believe Him for that which is impossible, until you walk in faith by actually... Because if it doesn't support you, you're going down. And until Christ is all you have, and you think, okay, if it isn't you, I'm sunk. 
if you aren't who you say you are, how that contextualizes for you and for me is going to be completely different. There's so many ways this matters. could be in your attitude. It could be in saying, yes, I'm going to stay in this marriage. It could be in saying, I'm not going to fear. It could be in saying, I'm going to get on an airplane. It could be saying, I'm going to write that letter. I'm going to ask for forgiveness. I'm going to go and offer forgiveness. It can a myriad of ways. And it's a process for some because it, we can't often, sometimes we can't control our emotions. We can't control how we feel. God is bigger than your feelings. He is. And you may feel a lot of things. It doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it wrong either. But that His Word is objective truth, not subjective truth. Last thing, the baby wasn't born tomorrow. The promise is here. He believes him and it's counted to him as righteousness. Care to guess how many years before the baby is born? It's not pretty, guys. It's decades for Abram. Care to guess when the promise of God is coming for the land to be given? We're going to find out Genesis 15. He says, here's my plan. You could have snatched the land from the king of Sodom. You could have taken a piece of the land, that southeast corner. You could have dominated it. You had the right. But here's my plan. In 400 years after your descendants have been released from Egypt, you're going to get the land. That's my plan, Abram. What I would have said if I were Abram, oh God, I have a problem with that. I won't be here. He says, yeah, but the promise was to you and your children and all those who are following. You see, God doesn't see life like we see it. And those who've passed on before us, they stand and they cheer us on to walk in faith. And one day I may go to my father's, grandfather's, and I'll cheer you on in faith. And one day it'll be revealed and the clouds will be rolled back like a scroll and we'll say, God, you were in control from day one until now. How could I have ever doubted you? Because if you sent your son, you withheld nothing from me. How could I have thought that you would do anything more than give me your best? Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, I thank you that you reveal yourself in Scripture in a myriad of ways. And that as Abram walked with you, imperfectly sometimes, and yet with such faith and courage at others, Lord, it encourages me and us to pursue you and to walk with you. Lord, while not absolutely clear, it's instructive to me that this priest-king, Melchizedek, offers the meal of victory in Genesis chapter 14, and he says he offers bread and wine to Abram. Lord, and I know he had no conception of the foreshadowing of another Melchizedek who would offer bread and wine that in the order of a priest who was forever, not like Aaron, not a priest of the law, but one of grace, the superior one, offered bread and wine to us on the night he was betrayed because he took bread, and when he given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, take and eat. This is my body. It's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then after supper, taking a cup of wine, he gives thanks and he offers it to them and he says, drink this, all of you. 
This is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread, drink this cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Father, help us not to snatch for ourselves that which can only come through the cross. Lord, it's in dying to our rights, Lord, that you are seen. So, Father, we would come as broken people, but redeemed and being made new in grace as we receive these gifts from your hand. Gifts of God for the people of God, we take them in thanksgiving. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.